Hello, and welcome to Moderate Party, a political podcast for moderates, centrists, and independents. I'm your host, Hillary Lombard, and today I want to talk about infighting in the Democratic Party. And if you're thinking, I don't really lean Democrat, I thought you said this was for moderates, there are lessons to be learned for all. All right, here we go. The 2020 election was a mixed bag for Democrats. They won the presidency, but only picked up two Senate seats, give or take a Georgia runoff, and they lost between eight and 13 House seats, according to the Wall Street Journal. Not to mention they got slaughtered in state legislature races. This is a particularly tough pill to swallow because the polling for Democrats looked so promising. Anyone who sat through the movie Suicide Squad can tell you that defeat hurts more when you're expecting good results. The 538 polling forecast gave Democrats an 80% chance of winning the Senate. It predicted the Democrats would pick up five seats and hold on to all of its existing seats. And it even said Texas was in play. Texas. For those of you who don't follow politics closely, Texas is basically the Democratic Party's Moby Dick. It's big, it's mostly white, and they'll spend their whole lives chasing it. Spoiler alert, the Democrats did not take Texas. Once it became clear the Democrats were not going to have the results that they wanted, the infighting began immediately. Several days after election night, the Democrats had a phone call to basically discuss what happened, what they can do, and honestly air out some grievances. And to the surprise of literally no one, the audio from that call leaked. And as a result of that leaked audio, we now know that moderate badass Abigail Spanberger, a congressional representative from Virginia, had some things to get off her chest. Now, she specifically requested that her comments be off the record. Obviously, the audio leaked anyway, and the media has reported it out, which I think is a bit of a dick move. So we're not going to air them on this show. But she basically says, election day was a failure. We lost good people. She says that progressive ideas like defund the police and socialism killed Democrats in swing districts. Even though she personally did not support these ideas, she was hammered in attack ads nevertheless. And she's not the only one. She wants Democrats to talk about policies and the good that they can do for people and honestly never say the word socialist again. So in the fallout of this call... The New York Times reaches out to progressive rock star and red lip icon Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a.k.a. AOC. She basically says, no, progressive ideas did not cost you the election. Progressive ideas helped Democrats. They turned out new voters. And if Democrats fail to act on progressive ideas, they're actually going to lose those new voters because they'll be disenchanted. They came out and they voted for something that they believe in. And if Dems don't act on it, then why would they come out and vote again? She argues that Democrats actually lost because they suck at campaigning. And then she does something weird. She calls out moderate Congressman Connor Lamb, who at this point had been minding his own damn business. And she says that his campaign only spent two grand on Facebook a week before the election. She knows because she looked it up. Can't keep a millennial down. Am I right? She says, and I quote, I don't think anybody who is not on the Internet in a real way in the year of our Lord 2020 can blame this on anybody else when you're not even on the internet. I want to add some context here. The Republican Party, specifically the Trump campaign, has digital ads on lock. They've got it down. 
And a lot of the attack ads that they're running digitally are brutal. They're the kind of ads that can't run on TV because they're either inaccurate or so intense that everyone would be like, holy shit, man, chill. But everyone's attitude on the internet is more cowbell. Give me the most extreme content. I love it. So AOC is arguing that if Democrats don't have a strong digital game, they're letting that narrative go unchallenged. And honestly, she has a point. It's 2020. Get on the internet. But maybe the ads that he spent two grand promoting were actually really good because Connor Lamb didn't lose his race. He actually won it. Granted, not by a lot, but a win is a win as far as I'm concerned. So maybe we should just let Connor Lamb run whatever campaign Connor Lamb wants to run and save the hot takes for people that lose. But anyway, back to our story. So recently called out Congressman Connor Lamb is feeling chatty and he calls up the New York Times to respond. And he says, what's up, AOC? I heard you were talking shit. I'm kidding. He doesn't say that. I wish he said that. It'd be kind of funny. But no, he says she doesn't know my campaign. She doesn't know my district. He argues that in a swing district message matters and it's killing them. He makes a point not to speak for Democrats across the board, but he says that in his district, his constituents were really concerned about the ideas of defunding the police, and they were really opposed to banning fracking. Two positions that he himself does not support. But just like Congresswoman Spanberger, he was attacked for them nevertheless. So this whole thing is playing out, and I gotta be honest with you. I don't actually think that that's a bad thing. I think that disunity makes your party weaker, but your country stronger. Fighting isn't necessarily bad. I actually, I wish that both parties had more infighting. Fighting means that you have a diversity of opinion. What scares me is when there's zero dissent within a party. If we all agree on an issue, it doesn't get vet out the way it should be. Unless that issue is Brad Pitt. That beautiful bastard is America's last bipartisan agreement. Our government presides over 328 million people. You think they all share one opinion? The election results indicate that they definitely do not. But if we want laws that represent those people, we need to develop them with more than one perspective. So I am all for having a progressive wing of the Democratic Party, a moderate wing of the Democratic Party, a conservative wing of the Republican Party, and a moderate wing of the Republican Party. Throw in some libertarians and Green Party in there too. Let's get everybody in there. I want all of the perspectives and all of the ideas because what will come out of that, I hope, it's some pretty kick-ass legislation. And you know it's going to pass because we all worked on it together. So all the infighting within the Democratic Party has sparked a lot of media coverage. The Atlantic ran a piece titled The Democratic Truce is Over. In that piece, they quote Walid Shahid, the communications director of an organization dedicated to electing progressive leaders. Shahid argues that Democrats that lost in swing districts lacked a compelling agenda. He goes on to say, and I quote, the conservative wing of the Democratic Party has zero ideas to offer, save that they think the left is going too far and that Trump is going too far, end quote. I've got a couple of problems with this. Number one, the conservative wing of the Democratic Party. Really? Okay, buddy. Chill. Honestly, let's calm it down. Number two, the American people also think that the far left is going too far and that Trump is going too far. That's why they elected a centrist Democrat and a Republican Senate. That doesn't mean that moderates lack a compelling agenda. It means that they're more in touch with the American people. A lot of progressive ideas find the most support on Twitter and in the press, but they don't find the same support at the ballot box. According to a report published last year by Third Way, a center-left think tank, 
Most Democratic primary voters want reducing the cost of health care to be a top priority for the president. When they asked primary voters about Medicare for all, it had 65% support initially. But when that group got into the details of what that would actually look like, support drops to 29%. And that's within the Democratic Party. Never mind the other half of the country. But progressives deserve credit. They motivate the base. They muster enthusiasm in a way that no other group really can. They bring an energy and enthusiasm to politics that is often lacking. And they push forward on critical issues like racial injustice and climate change. Their continued push on these issues enables progress. If progressives weren't pushing, no one would ever move. On issues like these, moderates can often be seen as acting too slowly. They're too ready to compromise. And honestly, sometimes that can be a fair critique. Sometimes, in the interest of moderation or bipartisanship, lawmakers fail to act decisively. But that is in no way every moderate. At least I hope not, or I really picked the wrong group to do a podcast on. So what's a moderate to do? Sit back and let inequality continue until the planet catches fire from all of our inaction? How do we reconcile the need for real progress with the desire to lead from the center and represent the middle of America? It's a tough question, and it's one that I honestly don't have an answer for, which is why I reached out to today's guest, Lene Erickson. Lene is the vice president of social policy and politics at Third Way, the center-left think tank I mentioned earlier. Guys, as a sidebar, it is not easy to say think tank repeatedly. I'm going to struggle with it throughout the interview, and I just ask you to be patient and kind. Anyway, back to our guest. Lene is a badass by any metric. She served on an advisory council for President Obama. She led Third Way's effort to mobilize moderates in support of same-sex marriage. She's been featured in a variety of news outlets, including the Washington Post, the New York Times, USA Today, Politico, the New York Times, PBS NewsHour, shout out to the old people. She's also appeared on NPR, C-SPAN, and even Fox News. So when I say that she knows what she's talking about, I'm not messing around. The one disclaimer I will give for this interview is that we recorded it before we knew the full extent of the election results. So we knew that Joe Biden was most likely going to be our president. We knew it wasn't a great night for Democrats, but we didn't know the full extent of that. So without any further ado, Lene Erickson. Lene, hello and welcome to Mod Pod. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Of course. All right. I want to be conscientious of your time, so I'm just going to jump right on into it. One of the things that I've been hearing is when progressives focus too much on social issues, they actually split voters along cultural lines and perpetuate identity politics. And when I was looking into your bio, it was talking about how you work to mobilize moderate voters in support of same-sex marriage. Yeah. So I guess my first question for you is, how do you think that you move social policy forward from the center instead of the far left? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, I think the answer lies in persuading people, which requires actually taking their concerns seriously. And I, you know, I think particularly on like social issues, um, we people feel these things so deeply, whether it's abortion or guns or um, LGBT issues or uh, women's equality, what, whatever the thing is, racial justice they feel it so deeply that they just refuse to believe that the other side has any piece of the truth. And they demonize folks who think the other thing. So, you know, as we were watching the marriage ballot initiatives, like ban marriage all over the country, you know, there are a lot of LGBT people like myself 
uh, who were struggling with that because we're, we felt ourselves were on the ballot. And it was very easy to go to, well, all those people are homophobic. They're bigots. And that was very not helpful, right? Like, how do you persuade someone by calling them a bigot? It doesn't work very well. You persuade them to fight you. Right? So you yeah, you persuade them to not talk to you anymore. But I think, you know, that that's our gut reflex. And so you have to figure out how to think about a person that is on the other side that might actually have a legitimate concern. You think that person is a good person, deeply believes this, you know, opposing view, what might they be worried about? What piece of the truth do they have? And then how can you, how can you counter that? You know, um, when we were working on the hate crimes bill before marriage was even, um, you know, really in focus, there were a lot of folks that were worried that uh, allowing the federal government to prosecute hate crimes against LGBT people would um, really impact religious liberty. And that it would be used to put pastors in jail who were not supportive of LGBT people or, um, you know, preached against homosexuality. And that was a real concern for people. And we had to take that and, and actually respond to it in the legislation and say, no, we're going to restate our First Amendment, which is you are allowed to say whatever you want, as long as you are not you know, physically hurting people. There's a, uh, we're talking about people who are uh, committing violent crimes against people and not someone who is, is speaking. And, um, and that really helps tamp down people's concerns. Um, but, you know, there's, there's, two, there's two ways you can go forward on that. One is to say, that's ridiculous. Look at the First Amendment. And the other is to say, oh, okay, that's a concern. Let's figure out what we can put in the legislation to make you feel that that concern has been heard and addressed. Um, and, you know, I think that it, when you can do that, whether it's on immigration, where there are real legitimate concerns that people have, um, whether it's on, you know, guns, um, there, that is what persuades people to come along with you. But too often our politics is incented to just call the other side a bigot and walk away. Do you think that the ability to persuade people is hindered by the fact that both sides consume such radically different news sources? Yeah, absolutely. I think like uh, the stratification of our media is like definitely contributing to polarization. Um, you know, any of us can go and find a media source that confirms our pre-existing beliefs. And, and that's problematic because we aren't operating from a common set of facts or values and we don't even trust each other's news sources. But I think that's where the fact that we continue to silo ourselves in our personal relationships becomes um, also problematic because the only way you get over that is to have personal conversations with people who disagree with you. And if we more and more refuse to do that, refuse to actually be friends with or be around or be in a church with or be in a civil organization with people that don't agree with us, then and we're kind of self-segregating to only people that already confirm our beliefs. We can't have those conversations. So you're not getting it in the news. You're not getting it from your your personal conversations. Where are you going to get any kind of you know viewpoint that that there might be some truth on the other side? 
Do you think that people do want to find a middle ground or do you think that we're happily polarized? I think most people are very uncomfortable with the polarization, particularly when it when it hits them personally in their personal relationships. I mean, and people have said this about the Trump administration in particular, you know, so divisive and and it has made it very difficult for people to have family conversations about a lot of things. And, um, you know, and that's a real problem because family, I think, is oftentimes the only thing you have left where you don't get to pick, you know, which (laughs) which political viewpoints this person has. So you do have some built in conversation with people that disagree with you, at least in some families. So I think, you know, most Americans would love to be able to, like, have a civil conversation (laughs) about politics. and, And it's harder and harder in this particular moment. Hopefully that'll get a little better and the the kind of vitriol will be turned down a little bit. Um, but, you know, certainly there are folks that benefit from keeping it high, too. So I'm sure I'm sure they will continue to do that. And on the political side, I think most people want Congress to get things done. So, you know, that the fact that we don't have a covid relief package because they can't even talk to each other that sucks. And I think all of us are like, just do your job. We need a COVID package. Um, you know, the, the country is suffering. Uh, so it would be better if they could work together. But a lot of the you know political systems we have set up are, are incentivizing them to do the opposite. And I think makes most Americans frustrated to watch. Totally. I mean, it's so frustrating. I feel like the inability to work together is actually compounded by the disappearance of moderates. They've generally become a an endangered species, if you will. And I think, you know, the center left is far more visible, right? Like you've got the Blue Dog Caucus, you've got New Democrats. There are these groups, and granted, they're not huge, but they're out here kind of staking their claim on this moderate territory. But you'd you don't see lawmakers on the right doing the same thing. Where is the center right? Good question. Um, you know, I think it is. Um, it has been uh, really decimated by Trumpism right now because he has been so um, uh, obsessed with complete loyalty. He's punished people that <laughs> that have gone against him in any way, and and in fact, there's a reason that you know. Folks like Jeff Flake are not in office anymore because they knew if they said something about the president's, you know, horrible behavior, then they wouldn't be able to be in the Senate anymore. And and that's, you know, not how the Democratic Party operates right now. There's lots of voices and lots of hurting cats and we all have lots of disagreements. Um, So hopefully with Trump not you know, the leading figure in the party, there will be more of a debate and different, you know, kind of um, parts of the Republican Party talking about what they should stand for. Um, But there is an asymmetry in terms of how the parties deal with moderates in the first place. Because if you look at people who vote for Republicans, the the Republican um, coalition, not just registered Republicans, it's almost exclusively people who call themselves conservative. 80% say they call themselves conservative. On the Democratic side, only 40% of people who vote for Democrats call themselves liberal. Another 40% call themselves moderate. Another 20% call themselves conservative. 
So we just have a more diverse coalition ideologically, um, which means, and, and we have a smaller base. So, you know, a lot of people will compare the squad and AOC and Bernie and the left to the Tea Party, but they just aren't as powerful because the base is smaller. Um, so Republicans have learned, unfortunately, that they can um, win elections by appealing only to their base. And they continue to do that. But Democrats can't. So we have to have moderates in the fold. Um, and it means, you know, there's there's a lot more. Um, you know, proudly moderate Democrats, both in office and and working around to support them. Do you consider yourself to be a proud moderate? I am. Yes. Yeah. You know, I think of myself as a, a pragmatic progressive is the is the word that I like to use, which a lot of the new, um, particularly female members of Congress that came in in 2018 were using that term too. You know, for me, it's not about being like, in the middle on every single issue. It's about an approach to politics and how I want change to happen. You know, I've seen um, change happen and I've, I believe that people can be persuaded. I worked on, you know, um, LGBT issues where we've seen huge change in opinion. Over this summer, we've seen huge change in opinion on racial justice. I think that's another place where we can make real progress by persuading people and helping people to see what it's like in someone else's shoes. Um, rather than yelling at them. Um, so I believe you can persuade people. So I want to persuade them. I don't want to win by 50.1% and then do a bunch of things by executive order and then lose by 50.1% and then see them all go away. It's a very unstable way <laughs> to govern our country. And, and it's very unsatisfying to me. You know, when I was working on marriage, I um, I said, I don't want this to continue to be an issue we have to fight about when I have kids. I want, you know, 60, 70 percent of the country to be OK with my relationship before that happens. That's what I aspire to. So if that's what you're aspiring to is persuading not everyone in the country, but a, a really big, broad majority um, rather than just getting enough power to strong arm your ideas through you know, you, you end up approaching things differently. And, and that's really why I kind of put myself in the center left. What do you think about the critique that moderates are too slow or that they can't get anything done because they feel meh about everything? I think that there are lots of different kinds of moderates. And I always say there's the kind of moderate that um, looks around and says, I don't want to do anything because I don't want to make anyone mad. So I'm just going to stand really still and hope that no one sees me. Lazy and afraid. <laughs> right. It's like, just don't mess up and don't say anything. Um, you know, that kind of moderate politician feels very unsatisfying to me. <laughs> um, you know, and I think they end up running scared um, doing things, taking votes that they really shouldn't and they know aren't right um, because they're scared, um, it, which is very different than, say, a person who says, listen, this is what I think. I might agree with you on some things, might not agree with you on others, but but here's my stand and um, here's some places where I think my party's wrong. Um, you know, like Kirsten Cinema in, in uh, Arizona is a great example. Like, she is not a shrinking violet. You know what she thinks about everything. But and on some things, she's right in line with the Democratic Party. And in some things, she's not. And um, and she just communicates that. And so people think, OK, this is a person who is making determinations for themselves and thinking things through and not just 
taking the party line. Um, you know, that's the kind of moderate that I think is needed in politics and is is really appealing to voters. I think you're probably right on that. I mean, that's definitely the type of moderate that is more appealing to me. <laughs> so I want to switch gears a little bit here because I really want to dig into this concept that you raised in a memo that you wrote for Third Way, the concept of a funhouse mirror. So you, in your memo, you wrote, in the aftermath of Election Day 2016, it became clear that we had experienced the campaign through a funhouse mirror. What did you mean by that? Yeah, you know, I think all of us were super shocked um, when Donald Trump won the first time. And part of that was because the people we surrounded ourselves with never considered voting for him, and neither did we. (laughs) And um, more and more, I think, you know, we continue to find ourselves around people that agree with us. Um, and that validate our point of view and see things very similar, particularly politically. Um, and that really creates an echo chamber around yourself. So if you and your friends and the people you talk to on social media all hate Donald Trump, it's absolutely absurd to think that other people might not hate him because literally you haven't ever talked to anyone who liked him. So now seeing, you know, 60 million people vote for him. You're like, wait, I don't know any of those people. Who are those people? Um, and none of those people are on my Facebook feed except for my one crazy cousin. And we forget that that is not, you know, our social media feed is is curated by us and who we surround ourselves by. It's not a representative sample of the United States. Um, it just continues to feed, um, you know, us thinking that we know what's right and that, you know, our opinion is the only one, um, which, which is really difficult. And I think you see that, um, we did a lot of public opinion research in the, during the primary, um, for the, the democratic candidates to just ask like what primary voters were thinking about, because the conversation in the primary was so driven by what's on Twitter. And so we, we, um, did polls of primary voters, and only about one in 10 tweet. And that group looked totally different than the rest of the primary voters. Now, we're only talking about Democrats who vote in primaries, and they didn't want Medicare for all. They didn't want, you know, socialism. They didn't want any of those things. And yet that that very vocal minority on Twitter was getting so much attention in the primary and in the press um, that, you know, the other 90% just weren't represented in the conversation at all. So I think the funhouse mirror effect is, you know, the loudest voices or the people around you are the only ones you hear. And then you end up seeing a very different image than what's actually going on. One of the things that I'm pretty interested in is the idea that Joe Biden might have had a better understanding of America than the Democratic Party at large. He ran on a much more moderate right down the center message. And as a result, he is doing better than some of the congressional candidates. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think Joe Biden certainly has uh, a a broad appeal and wanted to create a big tent. Um, You know, he beat Bernie Sanders, not by a little, but by a lot. And you know, folks um, kind of forget that. Like he trounced Bernie Sanders in a way Hillary Clinton never did. Um, So I think even the Democratic primary voters wanted what Joe Biden had for sale, which was, you know, bringing back sanity and and healing the country and making it less divisive and working with the other side and and making pragmatic progress, but not revolution. Um, So, but it is interesting to see some of these down ballot folks do worse than him. 
I wonder what's going on there. And, you know, we're actually um, doing a lot of like data research to try to figure it out right now. I think one of the things is it is easier to be a different kind of Democrat at the top of the ticket. Like Joe Biden spent a trillion dollars and people knew who he was. And so if there was an attack ad that said he's going to defund the police and bring in socialism, people were like, really? Because I hear Joe Biden and that's not what he sounds like. But when you're Sochi Torres Small, who is one of my favorite members of Congress who just lost in a rural district in uh, New Mexico, Trump had won her district last time by 10 points. And then she won it in 2018. But every ad was not about her. It was about the Democratic Party. (laughs) And no matter how much she pushed back and was a different kind of Democrat, she didn't add where she's hunting, you know, she's like shooting things. She's doing uh, work with the border patrol. She's um, out there, you know, uh, she's, she's out there like um, getting endorsements from the chamber of commerce. And uh, it didn't matter because people were like, I don't really know you. So, and it seems like you're a Democrat and I'm not sure I'm cool with that. So I think if you're a down ballot candidate, it's a lot harder to outrun the, you know, the party brand. Um, And unfortunately, the party brand at this moment has been really defined in part by the loudest voices on the left who are saying they want those things. So, you know, they they say we want socialism. (laughs) So it's pretty easy to write an attack ad that says Democrats want socialism when a bunch of people are saying that out loud. Which kind of goes to the funhouse mirror point that you raised, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, it used to be that some people had louder voices than others in the political process. Um, And, you know, the extremes have always had more power, like our caucus system gives the extremes more power, you know, only somebody who's willing to come sit for nine hours at a caucus is able to be counted, you know, uh, closed primaries don't let independents participate, you can only, you know, only if you're a card carrying member of the party, can you have a viewpoint about who the candidates should be. Um, But social media has made it so much worse, because it just allows people who say the most extreme things to get, you know, exponentially more exposure um, and uh, and retweets and attention. And, you know, that's true on, I think, both sides of the aisle. What do you think can be done about that to combat that? You know, I think that the social media piece is kind of always going to be that way, right? Like, what, what do we look at and retweet is the most ridiculous thing someone says, right? When I was looking at Trump's tweets this morning, I was trying to find the most ridiculous one, which, you know, is, you is a high part. <laughs> it's a hard thing to figure out. But, uh, but it's true. And so that is difficult. Um, I think in our political system, though, we could make some reforms that would make things a lot better. So one of my favorite is ranked choice voting, which you could also call um, instant runoff. You know, it's the idea that instead of saying I choose this person or this person, you rank the candidates in order. So if there's five of them, you say one, two, three, four, five. And nobody can win until they have a majority of the votes. So if your first choices doesn't get you to a majority, then you look at who the second choices were. And you have to assemble a majority of of the folks you're representing. Um, And that is something they've done in Maine statewide. And it is very interesting to watch what just happened in Maine. So Susan Collins, you know, moderate Republican, one of the few left, 
just kept the seat in Maine, even though Maine went for Joe Biden. Almost no other senators <laughs> were able to do that, right? Like it, they couldn't hang on. If the president was losing, uh, you know, in their state, then they weren't able to hang on um, if they were in the same party. And Susan Collins did it, and it's because Maine has tried to counteract this, um, you know, this intense influence of the extremes with ranked choice voting. And, you know, there's other things too, gerrymandering, obviously, the fact that we draw congressional districts to make them the most extreme possible. And then that means that more people in Congress have to worry about their primary than their general election, which means it's logical for them to worry about their extremes. You know, it's it's actually creating an incentive for them to care about what the most extreme people in their party think rather than the rest of their constituents. So I think that's a big one. And I also think we have to end caucuses like caucuses and closed primaries are ridiculous. You know, when when you are an independent voter and you don't have any say on who the candidates are until the end and then you look at them and you're like, I don't like either of these two. How do we fix that? And that's by making sure that the process by which we put people on the ballot includes more voters so that, you know, when we get to the end and there's choices there, more people see someone that they actually would like to vote for rather than saying, okay, I have to pick the lesser of two evils. So are you saying that you'd like to open the primaries? Yeah, I think we should have, you know, you can do semi-open primaries. Like there's always, I'm fine with open primaries, but there's always the concerns that like Republicans are going to vote in the Democratic primary to try to mess it up and whatever. I don't think there's a lot of evidence that's ever worked, um, but uh, but I get it. That's fine. Um, but you could do people registered of that party and independents can vote in whichever primary they they want, which is what some of the states have done. And that works really well to kind of broaden the electorate of people who are choosing the candidates that they ultimately bring to the general. Okay, so for me, ranked choice voting kind of seems like a no brainer, right? Like if candidate A is my first choice, and candidate B is my second choice, I would so much rather have candidate B than no one at all because my vote was thrown out. But when we look at the data, ranked choice voting was actually just voted down in Massachusetts. So what do you think is the barrier to getting that passed? Yeah, it's super interesting. I think it's it's hard to explain. Um, and proponents have gone, there's a lot of like very academic-y people who like to talk about ranked choice voting, but I think we haven't gotten, you know, the, the um, idea out to the masses. Um, and it, if it feels like a change and you're not quite sure what, what it's going to do, um, you know, you might be hesitant to make a change. Um, there's also some folks who are worried, like really super partisan people might be worried that it hurts their candidate, you know, <laughs> and, uh, we've seen that in California, they went to the jungle primary where it's, you know, you, you just the top two vote getters get to be in the general election. That's actually been had some kind of weird results, right? Like you have two Republicans that split the vote, and then it's it's just had some wonky um, wonky impacts that I don't think are representative of what the the voters in that district necessarily wanted. Um, so I think people are also just kind of hesitant to like try something new with our election system. But if we can continue to kind of socialize it and see how it works in other places, maybe it can expand because. You know, I think there are a lot of people that would love to vote for the person they actually really want, as opposed to worrying about the spoiler effect. So, you know, I have a very good friend who's a super green party person, 
Um, and, you know, she could to vote for the Green Party without worrying that that means she's actually putting Republicans in office. And it would allow her to say, this is what I really care about and the candidate I want to support. And then, you know, if that person doesn't have enough, like obviously Democrats are better than Republicans on on climate. Um, so I, I think it would be a more fulsome representation of of all of our views, if we could, you know, if we could um, say this person and then this person, as opposed to there's two and like, pick whichever you hate least. Do you think that if, uh, if that had been the case that Joe Biden would have still earned the Democratic nomination? I do, actually, because I think that, you know, Joe Biden um, had a lot of support um, throughout a lot of different communities. And as soon as um, communities of color started being counted. It was very clear that they preferred Biden over over the other candidates and African-American voters in particular. Now, if, you know, if people weren't running, if, if Democrats weren't running against Donald Trump, would they have picked someone else? Maybe, because I think we were all so freaked out um, per our discussion about the funhouse mirror, because we still do not really understand how we got here, um, that we really wanted to go with the person we thought had the best chance to beat him. And that was Biden. And we just were very risk averse this time around. Um, and there's a, a bunch of different ways to be more risky. You know, you could be more bold with your policies, but also there's a lot of folks who are worried that a female candidate or a candidate of color might not have as good of a chance. And that sucks, but it's also true um, in, you know, in the, the data that we've seen. And so it this electability argument was like, such a big piece of what people were going for. So I think that Joe Biden still would have been the nominee, but, um, but I would have loved to see that. And, um, and I'll say we've done the math on um, Donald Trump and Donald Trump would not have become the nominee if the uh, Republicans use ranked choice voting. Oh, that's interesting. If you added together the Rubio folks, the Kasich folks, the Jeb Bush folks, you know, those people were basically all selling like one kind of thing. <laughs> and, and, but their vote was so divided that Trump had this really solid high 20s, low 30s um, percentage throughout. And because there were five, you know, kind of more traditional conservatives in the race, it it made all of their power go away. And, uh, and we ended up with somebody who a minority of Republican voters even wanted to be the nominee at the time. So I guess I want to be conscientious of your time. So the last thing that I'd like to ask you about is uh, what other moderates do you think we should be watching? Like, I'm a big fan of Abigail Spamberger. I think she's just like, oh, but yes, who yes. else should we be looking at? Yeah, I love Abigail Spamberger. And I am sitting right outside her district right now. I'm uh, in Richmond, Virginia. So uh, definitely big Spamberger fan and saw all the attack ads against her, uh, which <laughs> thankfully she was able to overcome. Um, you know, I, uh, I really think that um, a lot of the super strong 2018 class of women that came in are, are fantastic and are going to be, you know, leaders moving forward. Um, Mikey Sherrill in New Jersey is just like, uh, incredible and not afraid to speak her mind. Uh, Chrissy Houlihan in Pennsylvania, who, um, you know, has, has, taken up a leadership role with, um, you know, the new Democrats, which are the, the other big block of kind of moderates in the house. Um, she's definitely one to watch. 
Um, you know, I think, I think Kirsten Sinema is definitely going to be like the new kind of moderate in the Senate. She's in a very different place than like Joe Manchin on a lot of things, um, but, but still definitely moderate. And, um, and she's one to watch, you know, I wonder what's going to happen to mayor Pete. Uh, I think he might have a, uh, a resurgence in the administration, which would be very interesting to see. I think he showed a lot of promise and, and um, you know, kind of a new, a, a younger generation's view of what moderates should be talking about and, and thinking about um, all those folks are really good. Um, another one I have my eye on is Hakeem Jeffries in the house who is, um, who is, you know, potentially the next speaker of the house once Nancy Pelosi decides that um, she wants to go. He's been really vocal in pushing back against the, efforts to kind of primary house members or, um, you know, bully them into taking litmus test positions. Um, and he stood up for a lot of the moderates in the house who've, who've, um, you know, taken tough votes and stood up against, um, the left and, you know, been kind of pilloried for it on Twitter. Um, so he's, he's another person that's definitely standing in, in the moderates corner. Lynnae, you've been wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. All right, guys, that's it for me. Join us next week for the latest episode of Mod Pod. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you liked it, feel free to leave us a five-star review. Thank you. See you next time. (laughs) 